If you have your Bibles, be turning to Hebrews chapter 2. And as you're making your way there, I'll remind you last Sunday we saw that chapter 2 begins with a word of warning. And you see that immediately in the first verse. Therefore, and as we said last week, based on all that has been said before in chapter 1, the author says we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And we spoke last Sunday about a danger of drifting away. Now in this case, the author is speaking of a danger of drifting away from salvation, of being close to the shore of salvation or to the harbor of salvation and taking your focus off the ship for a moment and sailing right by. It's a warning of loss. And as we've been walking through this, we've seen it. We applied it also to Christians, that we can drift away from the walk that we're called to. Churches can drift away from the truth of presenting and proclaiming the gospel. But primarily, this text is dealing with drifting away and missing salvation. And so there is a serious word of warning here, and it's going to continue uh, into what we're looking at today. Today, we're going to look at the idea of not, not neglecting so great a salvation. And so I want us to uh, think about this today. I'm going to try to be a little quicker today, not to strain my voice too much. And so I want us to look at the text again, and we'll jump right in. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. As we consider this text this morning, I want to look at three uh, points. First of all, a comparative argument. The argument is based on a comparative argument. We'll see that. Second of all, an urgent argument. There is a word of urgent warning here as well. And third, a glorious reminder. So beginning first with this comparative argument, it's kind of the nature of the author of Hebrews' letter here. This letter is a very comparative letter. Uh, We recognize that it offers and and is filled with comparative arguments. Uh, This is because the author is comparing and contrasting the fullness of what is in Christ in this new covenant to what is in the old what Christ has done to what those who came before Him had done and accomplished. We saw that even in the first chapter, didn't we? In fact, from the very first verse, it makes the point that in times past, God spoke through prophets of old, but now, finally and fully, by His own Son, who is not just a better prophet, He is, but He is the perfect prophet. He fulfills the office, the ideal the purpose of prophets. He is the perfect prophet. And so this is a style of argumentation we see throughout this letter. Why? Well, we'd go back to the first sermons that we preached in this letter. He's speaking to Hebrew Christians, at least people who have professed to be Christians. He is speaking to those who are turning away from the faith, walking back toward Judaism. And he's saying, what are you turning back to? All the things that you had before pointed forward to this. And so there's nothing that you can turn back to. We'll see that a little more fully today. But again, he's making this argument. And we've been saying for quite some time as we have walked through the end of chapter 1 that the author's intention is not to say 
do not worship angels. I've made this point many times. And it would seem like maybe that was his intention as you walk through it. He's saying Christ is greater than the angels. And maybe we would think the intention is say, to say not to worship angels. But as we said all along, that was never really an issue amongst the Hebrew people, amongst Jews. They always recognized angels were created servants, not God. And so there was always a resistance to worshiping angels. We talked about uh, even in some of the mystical sects of Judaism, they did not worship angels. We see it uh, in the New Testament mostly with Gnostics, with uh, Gentiles who have come into the faith and have accept, accepted Gnosticism and have begun to worship angels through that route, not through Jewish worship, if you will. And so again, that was never really the argument here. And we can see that now that we come to chapter 2, because we see that the groundwork has been laid in chapter 1 for the argument we come to today. And it's a comparative argument. Look at it again. Uh, Let's just look at the first three verses here. Therefore, we must give the most or more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Now, notice right off the bat that it's speaking of a word that was spoken and testified to, if you will, by the angels, a word spoken through them. Now, it's also a word that carried with it commandments because it says every transgression and disobedience of that word required or received a just reward. Now, what would that be in reference to? It would be in reference to the giving of the law. That is what was given that carried with it penalties uh, for disobedience. And we might say, well, if I turn back to Exodus 19 and 20 and so forth, I don't see any mention of angels there. I don't see angels acting as mediators, as is implied in this text. And uh, sure enough, if you were to turn there, you won't find them. But there are references in the Torah which make you, or give little hints at it, if you will. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, it states, And he, Moses, said, The Lord came from Sinai, and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousand of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. Now the ESV does it this way in those last couple of lines. He came from the ten thousand of his holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Now we would remember we would do well to remember that this author is not quoting from the New King James or the ESV. He's quoting from the Septuagint. So what does it say? It says this, On his right hand, his angels were with him. So again, this hint that when he did this work, if you will, at Mount Sinai, the angels were there with him. That's the only hint we get in the Torah. Um, again, you might say, well, how is there a translational issue there between, uh, say, a translation that says he had fiery fire with him or a flaming fire with him and the angels. We spoke about this a few weeks back when it says he makes his ministers a flame of fire. That word is very close to seraph, which is the word for an angel, like a group of angels, right? The seraphim. And so again, it's very difficult to interpret these things sometimes. But this author is quoting the Septuagint who makes it clear that the proper interpretation is these are angels 
with God at Sinai. But again, there's nothing said about mediation there. Well, we could turn to Psalm 68, 17, where David speaks of the angelic host being with God at Sinai. Again, though, no note of any mediatory role there. But what is only hinted at in the Old Testament is made clear in the New Testament. There are several references in the New Testament. We spoke about this just a couple of weeks ago when we spoke about angels being ministers, that they are ministering spirits. So I gave these references then. We're going to look at them again. Acts 7, 38, Stephen says, This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the ones who received the living oracles to give to us. Just a few verses further in verse 53, it says, Who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So again, this is made clear in the New Testament. The law was given to Moses by angels. They acted as mediators between God and Moses. And so we recognize that. Paul, in a little different purpose in making this argument, Paul in Galatians 3 says this, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So it was appointed through angels. That's on the heavenly side. God mediating through angels, who then gave it to a mediator, who is Moses. And Moses is mediating on behalf of Israel. So what does that tell you? The law, the old covenant, is double mediated. Between God and the people of Israel, there stands two mediators. One on the heavenly side, if you will, and one on the human side. And that two mediators are angels on the heavenly side and Moses on the earthly side, if you will, or human side. And so the question is, why is that significant? Well, this law, which was double mediated by angels and by Moses, is now compared in light of a covenant that was mediated solely by one person. That's the point here. Well, who is the mediator of the new covenant? Christ Jesus alone. Christ Jesus alone. You don't need a heavenly mediator and a human mediator when you have one who is fully God and fully man. He serves both roles, you see, representing man, representing God, because He is God and because He is man. This is the importance, again, I say it often, of these doctrines that we hold to that are being dismissed often today. Oh, the Incarnation is not a central doctrine. It doesn't really matter if you hold to it. Nonsense. Nonsense. Christ can't even do this if He is not fully God and fully man. The Scripture tells us that His purpose here, what He is doing here as the mediator, is standing as the perfect prophet and priest of God. And the perfect prophet and priest of man, if you will. He represents God to man as the perfect prophet, and the perfect priest, He represents man to God. Again, He alone can fill this role singly, solely. Only Christ can do that. And so again, we recognize that. And the author has been arguing the end of chapter 1 to get to this. He said all the groundwork. Christ is greater than the angels. I'm going to tell it to you in seven or eight different ways. And He did. He walked through them, didn't He? In all these different ways that Christ is greater than the angels. Why? Because if Christ is greater than the angels, He's a greater mediator than the angels were. 
Now, why does that matter? It matters because we're talking about a people who are talking about leaving what they claim to be allegiance to the new covenant and going back to the old. And the argument here is, how can you go back to a lesser covenant? Now, that's uncomfortable wording, isn't it? Because it was given by God. But the Bible doesn't shy away from that wording. It wasn't the fullness of God's intention or plan. The, the new covenant was not a backup plan. It wasn't a plan B, a, a sideline. No, the new covenant was the plan of God to redeem people. And so therefore, the, the old covenant's purpose was to point us to our need of the new covenant. This is argued throughout Scripture. And so again, uh, we see this. So can we use all of this to establish a logical argument? Well, before we do that, let's think about one other place. I've quoted this before when we were talking about the prophets and the Son. If you were to turn to Matthew 21, I think you'll know this text, but feel free to turn there if you'd like to. 21, 33 through 46, there is a parable given of the vine dressers. A man owns and prepares his vineyard, then he travels to a far country. You know this parable. And so he hires it out, doesn't he? He leases it out to vine dressers. This was a, a common practice. And after the The grapes have had their harvest. He sends messengers. He sends servants to go collect the portion that he is due. This is uh, how it worked in in feudal societies. Uh, The landowner would lease out parts of his land to those who would work the land, and in exchange they would offer up a portion of what they produced, what they grew on that land. So this owner says, I'm sending my servants back to to get uh, what is rightfully mine. Now, what's interesting about this is uh, the servants are very poorly treated, aren't they? They're beaten, stoned, killed. Now, we could make parallels to the gospel here, certainly. But I really wanted you to notice uh, an argument of the text that's implied. In fact, it's not just implied, it's clearly stated. When those servants are sent a second time, or a new group of servants, more servants, it says, are sent, are they treated any better? No. It said they did likewise unto them. He said, I'll send my son. Surely they will not treat him this way. Now, uh, again, what's the the point I'm trying to make here? The, The argument of Scripture over and over is a son outranks a servant. A son is of higher status than a servant. That's clearly implied in the text. If they've mistreated servants, they will not mistreat my son. Of course, we know how that parable ends. Uh, They do indeed. But again, the, the principle is established that the son is greater. Here again, we have the same argument. A the son is greater than these angelic servants. Just as the covenant that he mediates is greater than the one they mediated. Now, if we wanted to put that in terms of a logical argument, we'd present it this way. If the Old Covenant was mediated by angels, and if the New Covenant was mediated by the Son of God, and if the Son is greater than the angels, then the New Covenant is greater than the Old Covenant. So it's a comparative argument establishing the greater status of the New Covenant. Now, again, why is that important? Well, we see if we just follow the text. Because it brings us to our second point, an urgent argument. An urgent argument. If the Old Covenant proves steadfast, now that's how uh, my uh, 
translation here has it, proved steadfast. Some, I think, say uh, legitimated and things like that. But the idea is the same. Uh, this word, babeos, in the, in the Greek, it means, it's a legal term actually, but it means to be proven, to be uh, shown to be legally enforceable. Well, the question is, was the law in the Old Testament proven legally enforceable? No question about it. We can go back over and over again and see that the law was carried out uh, in, in so many different cases that we can see. But again, it was proven steadfast. It was proven babeos. It was proven legally enforceable, legitimate. It was proven to be reality. And it did that by demonstrating that it punished every transgression. Now, that's what the author states. We know that. No, no Christian, no Jew would debate that. The law was proven legally enforceable. Well, if that's the case, then comparatively, comparatively, how much more will there be consequences for neglecting this revelation? If that revelation, which came, uh, was part of a lesser covenant and had a lesser mediation, carried such weighty consequences for disobedience and neglect, how much more serious will be the consequences for those who neglect this revelation of a greater covenant with a greater mediator, the Son of God Himself? Again, if one was willingly killed, excuse me, killed for willingly rejecting the law, how much more serious will the consequences be for those who reject God's own Son? God's own Son. And you can see why the question matters, because in biblical theology, there is a recognition of the inability to perfectly keep the law. Even in the Old Testament, it points over and over to our need of grace. In fact, the sacrificial system is there as a gracious reminder that you cannot perfectly keep the law and must offer sacrifices. And those sacrifices point to Christ, God's own Son, who Himself is the talos of that law, the aim, the point, the summation, the goal of the law. It's all fulfilled in Christ. And so again, we've walked through this many times, but the purpose of the law is to show us our sinfulness, God's holiness, and our need of Redeemer, uh, a mediator, to bridge that gap. And so again, if you're following the law correctly through the Old Testament, it leads you to the need of Christ. Without question, the need of Christ. So again, that being the case, what is left for you if you reject the very instrument of God's grace and mercy? That's a serious question. What is left to you? What escape is available to you if you reject the only one that's been given? The song we just sang ends with, in Christ alone, right? That, that mercy is offered in Christ alone. If you reject the only means of mercy, what other escape is left for you? If you walk away from Jesus, you must face judgment outside the ark of God's mercy. That's what the author is saying. What other escape is there? Any more than in the days of Noah, there was one ark. If you were... If you had a place on it and you rejected that place on it, if you just said, well, I'm not going on the ark, there was no place of safety for you. Likewise, outside the gospel message of Christ, who is our only hope, our only salvation, what hope or ark of safety is left for you? So the urgency of the matter here is obvious. The author is presenting this to these Hebrew Christians in very stark terms. There's nothing left to turn back to. Where would you go? The temple? Some kind of 
synagogue. I mean, the temple would be a better picture than that because you could at least offer sacrifices. But what good are those sacrifices when they were fulfilled in Christ? They pointed you to Him. What good would the priesthood do? What good would any of it do? How can you cling to any of those things when you're rejecting what they pointed to? What hope is found in them now that the fullness of Christ has come? Having rejected Christ, you simply return to shadows that carry no weight outside of Him. Those shadows have no power to save. There's no animal sacrifices left to offer once Christ had gone and and became our Passover lamb. There is no escape for those who reject God's only offer of hope and life in Christ. What else is there? Well, then you're just simply left to trying to live out what we sang a moment ago from the reverse position, right? Uh, There is some gift that I can give. There is some amount that I can donate. There is some work that I can do. But my friends, the Scriptures make it clear there is no work that you can do. Christ alone is our hope. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning, a glorious reminder. The author is contrasting the hopelessness and danger that he sees in those who would turn away from Christ with the hope, life, and glory found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how does he tell us that? Well, he says it very simply. He says, do not neglect this message. Well, what is this message? This message that represents so great a salvation. What simple and beautiful wording that is. So great a salvation. It's not just a salvation. It's a great salvation that we're offered. Now, how are we to rightly understand that? Well, think about this for a moment. We are lowly and fallen sinners deserving of death and the consequences of our own sin. We deserve that. We have no ability to stand and plea our case before a holy and righteous God. No ability whatsoever. We stand condemned before the law, before our own sinfulness. And our God would have been fully righteous to have let all of mankind perish. Now that is the testimony of Scripture. He would have been fully justified in saying, I'm not going to do anything to save this people. Nothing. They are sinners. They've fallen in sin. They disobeyed me. They deserve death. That was the promise given. If they ate of the tree, you will surely die. God had every right to enforce that. And yet in grace and mercy, He offered us a hope that we did not deserve and could not earn. He sent His only Son into the world to redeem us from the slavery of sin and death. And the Scripture puts it elegantly and beautifully that when we were yet against Him, Christ died for the ungodly. Think about that. When we were still His enemies at war, rebelling against Him, Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. And that great salvation is not only a hope against condemnation, it's more than that. Now, why do I say that? Oftentimes, uh, we don't think about the, the beauty of the message that we're given in the gospel and why it's so great a message of salvation. If you think about the prodigal son for a moment, this beautiful image that we give, are given in the gospel of Luke, here you have a prodigal son dishonored his father. And in fact, in the law, it says he was worthy of death for dishonoring his father. But he certainly is worthy of being disowned. And he goes off into a far land and further dishonors his father and lives riotously and runs out of all of his means and is humiliated and humbled 
uh, living in a pigsty, the one job no Jew would ever want, gets to the point of being so hungry that he thinks about eating the pods that they're feeding the swine. And he thinks, repents, has this moment where he recognizes that he has made a shipwreck of his life. And he thinks, you know, even the servants in my father's house ate better than I'm eating now. If I go back to him, and of course this is clearly the message, I don't deserve to be a son. But maybe he will take pity on me, take mercy upon me, and allow me back as a servant, as a slave, as a a person who works and is fed and given a place to sleep, but little more. That's all I deserve. And he's right about that, isn't he? He's right about that. That's all he deserves, if he deserves that. In fact, maybe we could argue that really he didn't even deserve that. Because his father could have rejected him altogether and said, you dishonored me. Uh, The law says I would have been right to, to kill you. Certainly you're not coming back home. You have no place here with me anymore. You're dead to me, son. Would have been justified to have done that. But that's not what he did. The scripture tells us when he sees his son yet afar off, he ran to him fell upon his neck, seized him. And you all know the rest of the story. He doesn't just simply give him food, a a place to sleep, work to do. That would be gracious in and of itself to say, yes, I'll give you a place. Though you've dishonored me, though you're not my son, I will take some level of mercy upon you. I'll give you a place to sleep and work to do and food to eat, but you are not my son. But that isn't what he did. He brings out the signet ring, kills the fatted calf, throws a party. He says, my son who once was dead is now alive. He's returned home. If you think about those parallels, they are there, aren't they? Because we're not just received back, saved from the consequences of sin, saved from from sins, delivered, if you will. We are reconciled to a holy and righteous God. Now that in and of itself is good news to a people who don't deserve it. But the scriptures go further than that when it speaks of so great a salvation. The scriptures tell us that we are made heirs in Christ, joint heirs with Him. My friends, it's just as that son was restored to his father's household, so we too are given a place in our father's family. We're given a place at the table. We celebrate that often. We are given an inheritance. We are given a title. We are a son or daughter of God. In the family of God. That is no small thing. That is a glorious truth. Something we could never have rightfully asked for. And yet we receive it in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine an earthly picture of something like this? A king has been betrayed by his own subjects. He finds out about it. He doesn't lop their heads off. He invites them into the palace, restores them to their lands. But even more unbelievably says, I'm going to adopt you into the royal family. It's almost ludicrous to think of in terms of of a human story. And yet it's the grace and glory of God that makes this a reality. God says to us, not only will I deliver you from death, Not only will I cleanse you of your sins, not only will I restore you, I'm going to 
adopt you into my family and you'll be with me forevermore. The author of Hebrews says, have you heard this story? You claim to have. You claim to have believed it. Have you recognized how great a salvation it's being spoken of before you? And if you do, how can you return back to the law? To offering sacrifices? Christ Jesus paid all that. If you truly understand that and have placed your faith in it, you will not turn back. How could you neglect so great a salvation? And hear the warning, if you do, what consequences will it carry? Severe consequences. And he words it this way again. How shall we escape if we turn away from Jesus? He says, if we neglect so great a salvation. But if you neglect, turn away from the only Redeemer offered to the people of God, what other escape from God's wrath is there? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? There is no other escape. I used the image last week of them uh, grabbing them by the shirt and shaking them. I, I can just imagine this author wanting to do that. What are you thinking? If you belong to Christ, why would you even think about turning away? Now again, as we're walking through this, I try to make this point over and over. I think the point the author is making is you'll prove that you're not with us if you turn away. That's the seriousness of the warning. But it's presented in stark terms, isn't it? How can you turn away from Christ? What other deliverance is there? And the answer is, if you turn away, there is no deliverance from you because you prove that you are outside the ark of God's salvation. That is Jesus Christ. You are outside. This is surely a great salvation. Do not neglect it. And so I'm going to say to you, brothers and sisters, do not neglect so great a salvation. Do not neglect the only means of hope that we have. Do not neglect Christ Jesus and the gospel that He has brought. Do not neglect so great a salvation because it's our only hope. It is our only hope. And if we turn away from it, there is no other hope. There is no other escape. 